0: The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 and 25-26. It can be found on pages 3 and 4 in the Black Bible. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. If you do well, you will not be accept- you will not be accepted. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires its contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" He said, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks so much for reading Georgia and thank you all for being here. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. really is a joy to have all of y'all here with us this morning. Um, one of the things I want you to know about Christ the King, <clears throat> this is not a place for perfect people. This is a place of imperfect people who uh, show up Needy, And so whoever you are, wherever you are uh, in your faith journey, just know that you're in a, in a place where all of us show up in need. But even though um, we are imperfect, we believe that the Bible actually tells us that there is a perfect Savior for imperfect people like us. And so every week at this point in our worship service, we gather around God's Word to see what it has to say about us and our need and about God who can meet us in it. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask him that he would help us with that right now. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, I give you thanks. We give you thanks that we can be together now around your word. And we pray that by the power of your spirit um, that you would bless us as we uh, consider what your holy, infallible word has to say to us. Would you use your word um, to cut to our hearts uh, and Lord, as you do that, we pray that it would be a healing cut. You, the great surgeon, the great physician, would you be at work in us now? We pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, if if someone was to ask you, like, where is the, when you, or maybe let me put it this way. When you think about the real you, what do you think about? Like, where are you kind of located? Um what is it that makes you you and for many of us we think of our minds that if I, if i was to say like what is it that's really me it's what it's what i'm thinking and that comes out of the enlightenment When Rene Descartes said, at the beginning of the Father of the Enlightenment, kind of launched the Enlightenment, I think therefore I am. One of the things that's come out of that is that Descartes located personhood in the mind. Okay, don't don't start snoozing on me yet, okay? There's a point to this. Because the Bible actually says a much more ancient way of looking at a human being is not just that we are minds. We're not just thinking things. But the Bible talks of us as, as, as minds, but also as bodies and as souls. That we are instead not thinking things, but rather when the body talks about like, what is it that's really you? It talks about your heart. It doesn't talk about your mind. It talks about your heart. Because what the Bible would have us to believe is that we are not fundamentally thinking things, but that we're fundamentally creatures of desire. I think it's one of the reasons that in the Gospels, you never really see Jesus say, what do you think? But he's always asking people, what do you want? And even when Jesus asks somebody like, what do you think about this? Even the subtext of that question is he's getting at their heart. Because that's what God is after. He's not after just your minds, he's after you. And when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about our mind, body, soul, kind of all that, like us, you. And that's what God is after, because we're creatures of desire. James K. Smith wrote a book on this. I love the title. Um, It's You Are What You Love. And we've heard, you are what you eat. He says, no, you are what you love. And he says, One of the things that this means is that you can't think your way into new hungers. And all the people who failed at diets said amen, right? You can't think your way into a new hunger. You can, like I can know in my mind that broccoli is good for me and that does not make me hunger for it. I can know all the information, the nutrients, the minerals that broccoli will give to me, but simply knowing that and knowing that my body will receive it well and be nourished by it doesn't make me hunger for it. I have to learn to desire it. And that doesn't come with a change of mind, but a change of heart. Because we are creatures of desire. And I'm curious, like, if I could have, like, a one-on-one pastoral coffee with you, which I do, by the way, sometimes. If y'all want to get coffee, I'm game. But, like, if I were to sit across the table from you, and we were getting coffee, and I leaned in and said, like, what is it that you want? What would you say? Like, in your heart of hearts, what is it that you really want? Okay, so we're going to do something different. We're going to start in the back, and we're going to stand up. now. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But... Like, that was scary, right? It's scary because it's a personal question. It's actually, it's the question that's at your very heart. Like, what is it that you want? And so what I want you to see is that God, God is one who has desires. He has wants. And as bearers of his image, so do we. We're creatures of desire, And so three points for you this morning. First, our desire. Second, sin's desire. See in this passage that sin has a desire. So our desire, sin's desire, and then God's desire. So first, our desire. Later in his book, Smith um, writes in, you are what you love. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. So if you want to make sense of like, why am I doing this? Why do I have this habit? Look at your heart. Look at your desires, because that's the wellspring from which it's flowing. And so we can see a little bit of a window into the heart of some of the characters here in this story. First off, and I'll be brief on this, but Eve, we get a little bit of a window into Eve's heart And uh, this is a little bit of speculation because commentators disagree on this, but I I think that it's interesting that Eve seems to favor Cain. And and this would have been um, common. I mean, this was common practice in the ancient Near East for for long thereafter. The, The technical term is the principle of primogeniture, which basically means just favoring the first child or the firstborn son, especially in the ancient Near East. And so here comes Cain, and Eve celebrates over him. She says, I have, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then Abel's born, and Eve says nothing. There's nothing said about Abel. And in fact, the name, the name Cain means to, to get or to possess You can't help think that like Eve's got that 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 promise of God ringing in the back of her head from the chapter before that God says there's going to be one who's going to come from you and and from your seed I will crush evil and so here comes this firstborn son and Eve's like I got it I got it I'm gonna get what I want now and then Abel's born Abel's name means vapor or breath. There's there's really no tension given to Abel in this story. He, he's he's silent in this story. So this is a, it's a it's a little bit of a window into Eve's heart, but it's it's we really get a window from his actions, from the wellspring of his heart. We 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 see the actions of Cain giving us a window into his heart here. And where does Cain? Get started off on the on the wrong foot in this passage now some some pastors uh, i 've heard preach this and, and and read on this before uh, would say like you know the problem is that Abel brought a bloody sacrifice, and Cain brought a grain sacrifice and and God loves a bloody sacrifice, and you know it 's kind of it's, pastors like to like make a connection to jesus so it 's kind of like an easy on ramp to like the, the sacrifice of jesus but what we actually see in this passage is the, the sacrifice that they bring, it, it's, a, it's the Hebrew word minha, which was typically a grain or a blood sacrifice. It could be, it was basically a, a, a sa- an offering, um, an offering of thanksgiving and a tribute. And so this minha is brought, and Cain's problem is not that he doesn't have a blood sacrifice. We see it in the text what his problem is. Abel brings from the fat portions of his flock. Abel brings his best to worship. And Cain just does what's required. Cain's kind of going through the motions. And we see a window there into Cain's heart. This is is what we do in religion very often. So we show up and we kind of, do what we think we're supposed to do and then we expect some kind of result as a result of our kind of input into the religious machine. I'm going to get the output that I want. We can even do this with like the way that we think about our faith. Like I'm going to get serious about my faith. I'm going to start going to church. Maybe that's why you came to Christ the King. I'm going to start coming to church. I'm going to start doing a Bible study. But if I don't feel better if I don't feel like i met with God, if I don't feel like a pretty immediate result of this, I'm out. Because we expect that there's this like equation that we're partaking in, that if I put in this, then I'll get that. And we can actually use religion and obedience as a way to try to manipulate God and get what we want from him. not as a way to participate in like demonstrating our heart to him. But the way that we worship, the way that we worship often indicates what's in our heart. Go to Kyle Field. Go to Kyle Field and listen to the way that the songs in Kyle Field or DKR or whatever stadium, listen to how the songs are sung in a college football stadium on a Saturday in Texas. And then come to church on a Sunday in Texas and listen to the hearts of the way that we, like, holy, holy, holy. Like, 24 hours ago, we're like, the eyes of Texas, you know, we're... Out of our worship, we reveal our hearts. Like, what is it that we really love? And Cain's heart has been revealed here. And, you know, maybe maybe if you're, like, not a Christian and you're here, first off, we're really glad that you're here and you may have wondered this before. Maybe you are a Christian, you've wondered this. Like, why does God care so much that we worship him? Like, is he insecure? Does God, have a, does God have an insecurity problem? Like, he just needs us all the time. Like, is God really needy? Because it can seem like that. Like, is God up in heaven? Just like, he didn't give me his best. Hmm. listen, the reason that God has a problem with Cain's worship is because God is good and he knows that Cain giving his heart, giving his desires to anything else will end up in Cain's misery. And so God, God isn't jealous for Cain's worship because God's insecure. God's jealous for Cain's worship because God loves people and he wants what's best for them. We had a a staff member when I was at UTRUF who um, who was injured. Uh, University of Texas, I was a campus minister at a ministry called Reform University Fellowship, RUF. You should totally check it out if you go to college. So one of our staff members was injured and uh, was looking around at surgeons to, to have her injury repaired. And one of our students was like, hey, listen, you really need to go see my dad. She's like, oh, well, I've got like we know some other specialists. My family's friends with them. And she goes and checks out, you know, gets some opinion. And this student kind of won't let it go. Like, you no, know, you, you really need to go see my dad. And so finally, the staff member just relents, goes um, to this dad's office in Dallas, walks in, and there's like all these pictures of like athletes on the wall like Dallas Cowboys she sits next to um, this very physically fit guy who gets called in and someone leans over he's like he plays for Chelsea football team in like England like the soccer team so she's like what is like what is going on here it turns out our student's dad was like the best he was the best in the world at fixing this injury And in fact, saw her injury. Says everyone else tells you surgery. You really don't need surgery. I'll give you some PT that you can do and you won't have any surgery, no incision and you'll be good good as new. And she was. Now, was that student being insecure when when she was saying, no, you really need to go see my dad? Of course not. Because she knows that her dad is the best. And so she wanted the best for that staff member. And that's how God is. He knows what is best. Best for us. So he's not annoyed at Cain or insecure that Cain just doesn't love him. He knows that any other desire that Cain gives himself to will lead exactly where it takes Cain, which is where Cain ends up, in the wilderness, in the dark, alone. Because, second point, that is sin's desire for you. Sin's desire for you is that you would be left in the dark in the wilderness, alone. Sin's desire is that you would be destroyed. The way that God describes sin here to Cain is he comes and warns him. He, sa- he says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It reminds me of what Peter later says about our adversary in First Peter. He says, your adversary prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour when a, when a lion is lying in wait and is prowling or is crouching, like the little antelope on the animal planet has no idea. It's not obvious to the antelope. It's like one of my pastors used to say, oftentimes sin like doesn't ride up on a Harley wearing leather chaps. It's not like, mm, let's go do something bad. You know, like, it's not obvious. Sin is lying in wait. And that's what happens here with Cain. It, it starts off with just, a, with just some anger. It, it actually starts off with religiosity. That's where it starts. It's kind of doing what he's required with no heart. And it turns into anger and resentment. And what sin, what sin does is it's a little bit like if you've, ever been, if you've ever been snow skiing and if you're like one of those crazy people who has to be like the first person down the mountain, you'll relate to this. I've been told this is how it works. I don't do that. But I've heard that if you go down a ski slope when there's a lot of powder on the, on the slope and part of the, the joy of getting to carve out the first tracks is that you are the one carving them. You go up, you carve the tracks onto this fresh mountain But as the day goes on, those tracks have been carved and they've been carved and they've been carved. And so by the end of the day, as you go down that mountain, you're not taking the mountain, the mountain is taking you. And that is what our sin does. It starts out with us us doing our sin and then the sin does us. The sin takes us. And that's what happens here with Cain. Cain. Later, the way of Cain is described in the book of Jude, verse 11. Uh, The author of Jude says that those who walk in the way of Cain, this is Jude 16, he says, these are grumblers, malcontents. It's like small, hidden things, grumbling, being malcontent. Following their own sinful desires, loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Sin lies so quietly crouching, waiting to pounce, starting with something as as simple as grumbling. Do you grumble? You ever like, just critical? Maybe even like, I find myself grumbling watching TV sometimes. Do you ever grumble when you're watching TV? Maybe you grumble watching TV when the news is on. And somebody that you just think is ridiculous is talking. I grumble sometimes when I'm watching sports. And, you know, some, like first take and someone's just giving their big hot take. I'm like, oh God. We grumble. We grumble about those people on, on the TV set and their views. Or, or when, you're, when your spouse messes up and you say, I knew you were gonna do that. That's a grumble. I knew you were gonna do that. Or maybe you know, another thing that I've, I've noticed even in, in myself um, and others is grumblers have a hard time taking a compliment. Someone compliments you, and rather than being thankful for that compliment, you grumble back to them, and you tell them how that compliment act, you know actually, like if you really knew, it wasn't that great, or you know just say thank you. <laughs> but instead, we grumble back at the compliment. We're grumblers, always finding a reason not to be thankful, and so it makes us, like Jude says, malcontents. The way of Cain makes us malcontent, malcontented. And we see our malcontentedness in all kinds of ways. The ways that sometimes we treat someone who serves us like a waiter. We Ever hard on a waiter who's serving you and working to care for you? Maybe, maybe, you know, we say we believe in grace here at this church. But when something goes wrong with my flight plans and I'm talking to that person at the desk, do we believe in grace then? With the person who, by the way, has like no power over the bad news that they just told you and no ability to change it? Do we extend grace to them or are we malcontents as we sit in our air-conditioned airport waiting for the miracle of flight to take us like hundreds of miles away and we're delayed for 30 minutes? we're malcontents and this hidden nature of our sin it grows and becomes more openly destructive even the way that Jude the way that Jude's sin that he lists progresses it starts with grumbling and then malcontentedness but then he says it becomes loud mouth boasting kind of like am I my brother's keeper I don't have time for him Loudmouth boasting, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Why does someone show favoritism to gain advantage? Because they're interested in their own selves and not in the other, not in the good of the other. Bruce Waltke, who's a Genesis commentator, says wickedness is advantaging myself by disadvantaging others. That's exactly what Cain does here. He is angry at Abel and the way that Abel in his eyes has been advantaged, and so he disadvantages him by taking his life. One generation into sin, and the first murder happens. We see in Genesis 4 the destructive nature of what sin is all about, the way that sin works in our world. And I want you to see that the thing that, even just like looking at Jude's progression, were grumblers, malcontents, and then the, right in the middle of his list, before you get to loudmouth boasting, before you get to showing favoritism to gain advantage, the thing that's right in the middle of his list, following their own sinful desires. There's that word again, desire. What is it that, that really like makes our sin metastasize? following our own sinful desires. Now, our culture would tell you that that is actually not true, that you should, you should follow your desires. And in fact, there's, um, you know, you can, there's tons of self-help books out there that would tell you you need, to, you need to listen to yourself, you need to follow your own desires. There's a self-help book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for months and months called Untamed by an author named Glennon Doyle. One of the things that she writes is to be brave is to forsake all others, to be true to yourself. That's what courage, and she actually says that is courage, to forsake all others to be true to yourself. Now listen, she, she is just saying what all the rest of our culture has been saying, The way that we live our lives is that you need to listen to your heart. You need to do you and that's where, that is where you'll actually find life and happiness. But here's the problem. If you forsake all others to be true to yourself, do you know what you end up with? You. You end up with just you. And that's what happens to Cain here. Cain ends up Alone, afraid, in the dark, and in the wilderness, severed off from his family. Can't, that is where you being true to yourself takes us. But, friends, while that is sin's desire for you, for you to be taken, to be separated, to be alone, to despair, God's desire for you, God's desire is quite different. Third point, God's desire. God's desire is that we would have fellowship with him. But what must happen for that to be possible? A couple things. First, the first thing that we see that God does to address what has just happened is God begins speaking about justice. God shows up in the garden, or not in the garden, God shows up with Cain And he tells him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood in verse 10 is crying to God. And I want you to, friends, in a room this size, there are people who need to hear that God hears the plight of the victim. That after this, horrible atrocity has been done, the first thing that God is thinking about and speaking to is the way that somebody has been victimized. And before God is going to do anything else, he's he's going to deal with that truth. God sees it. God hears it. And that is true today. God will have his justice And later in the Old Testament, God does reveal to himself, when Moses is like, show me your glory, I want to know what you're like, the first thing that God says about himself as he passes by Noah, who he hides, or Noah, Moses, as he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock, he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. So God is, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, and yet he also affirms that he will have his justice. If you have been victimized, if you see yourself in Abel's story, God hears and he sees and he will do something about it because he's good. He will actually pour out his wrath upon all injustice in our world. And in Romans 1, when, God, when Paul describes what God's wrath looks like, he talks about giving men over to their desires. That one of the ways that God pours out his wrath is simply to look at men and say, you know what, that's what you want, that's what you get. You don't want me, you don't want me the fount of all goodness, of all beauty, of all life. You don't want me, I w- you want you, you want to do you. Okay, that is God's wrath to give us over to our desires. But he will, he will be just for all the wrongdoing. And yet he is also both just and gracious at the same time. And we see that here with Cain, I mean, this is really interesting. I, I didn't know this I was studying for this, um, this sermon this week. There are just three times in the book of Genesis that this word mark is used, the mark that God puts on, um, on Cain. The other two times that this word is used, one is with Noah, not Moses, Noah. And it's with Noah when God pro- promises to Noah that he will not pour out his wrath again on the earth for the disobedience of men and so he gives noah this mark this sign which is a rainbow and it's a rainbow that's meant to be a reminder of god's graciousness and goodness in fact that the word rainbow i'm going to talk about this more when we get to noah but spoiler alert this is so cool that word rainbow in hebrew also means battle bow and so when noah looks at this rainbow in the sky where is the bow pointed it's pointed into heaven the next time that God's going to unleash his wrath for all the disobedience, the arrow is pointed into the heart of God. That's the sign he gives to Noah. And he gives a similar sign to Abraham when he makes all these promises to Abraham that going to be his, Abraham's people are gonna be God's people. And Abraham's gonna be blessed with a child and God marks Abraham and there's all these promises connected to that. And that's the other, and the third time that this word mark is used is with Cain. And listen, like, Cain is a rebel. Cain doesn't want anything to do with God. Cain does not repent ever, at least in this passage. We never see Cain repent. He has ample opportunities to repent. Cain doesn't, and yet God still graciously marks him. God's still kind to him. This is is what we call common grace. Even, Even though we don't see Cain like, saved here in this passage, God doesn't stop being good to him. God is so kind to him. And in this kindness, we, we're told that in the Bible, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness to Cain is an invitation to Cain to turn to him and to repent. And you're going to hear me say this a lot if you come to Christ the King, um, the, you know, You're just gonna hear me say this a lot, so sorry in advance, but not sorry, because I did not get this for a while. I used to think that repentance, repentance was I've been doing this bad thing and I need to turn and start doing the good thing. And that's what the the word repentance means. It means turning. It's why God's always telling us people, you're stiff-necked people. You don't turn, you're stiff-necked. So repentance is not, here's the bad that I'm doing. I've been walking in the way of Cain. I'm gonna turn from that and turn to obedience. Repentance is I'm going to turn from the wrong that I've been doing and I'm going to turn to Jesus where there is grace and justice. I'm going to turn to the one who has poured out his grace, who welcomes me to come with my mess, with my sin. I'm going to turn to him and because of his grace, I will be motivated to obedience. But we we get that switched up so often, don't we? But it's his kindness, friends, that leads us to repentance. God demonstrates to us in this story and throughout the Bible that he is worth trusting with our yuck and with our sin and with our brokenness. I mean, he does it with Adam and Eve. He covers them as they're leaving the garden. He covers them. He makes sacrifice for them so that they can go out and be protected. He does it with with the first son who's a murderer and he keeps on pouring out kindness to him to welcome him towards repentance. God is doing that over and over, and he does that with you. He welcomes you to to bring the real you, the real you to him, because he's gracious and kind. He is the one who ultimately does fulfill the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there is one who's coming who who will crush the evil one and so God sends his son, the Lord Jesus, second person of the Trinity, becomes a man. In a sense, he becomes, like, he becomes like Cain. He becomes as guilty as Cain. He takes our sin and becomes as guilty as Cain and takes it to the cross. And the justice that we deserved is put upon the Lord Jesus because God is just and God pours out his wrath upon Jesus in our place. Jesus also becomes like Abel. Abel who was victimized and ignored. Jesus becomes like Abel and just like Abel's blood cried from the ground to God, the blood of Jesus cries to the Lord that we have been paid for, we have been bought with a price, that the work is finished. So we can turn to him in faith said Bruce Waltke, um, Bruce Waltke calls wickedness, advantaging the self by disadvantaging the other. Righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus is that he disadvantages himself for the sake of advantaging us. And so friends, I want you to consider that you are invited, you are invited to put your faith in the one who's for you. I mean, it's It's kind of interesting, the the next child who's born is this kid named Seth. Eve names him Seth, which means to place or to put. She's no longer thinking about grasping or taking the promises of God. Rather, I have to place my faith in the Lord that he will be true to his promises. And that's what he welcomes us to do. That he will be true even to the promise of welcoming any who will call out to him for help. And that call is for us today. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you do invite sinners like us to be known by you, to be loved by you, to be paid for by you, to be welcomed and adopted by you. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, that you would make us more like yourself. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.